Hi, my name is Charlie Bird, and for almost 40 years, I reported on some of the biggest stories of the day. Today, I want to introduce you to a young Irishman who I think you will feel very proud of. A role model, a rescuer, and simply a young guy from Kerry who wasn't prepared to sit around and do nothing when he saw people dying in the Mediterranean. Sean Binder, it's a pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. And Sean, I just want you, because people will not know what's coming up in this podcast. Tell me what brought you to Greece and how you ended up in a jail in Greece. I guess the way that I came to the situation, like like many others, if you remember that picture of Alan Curdy, that young boy who was washed up on the beach face down. Never forget it. So the Mediterranean is now the deadliest sea in the world with over 20,000 deaths. And I think it's hard to grasp those numbers, but it was so clear to see Alan Curdy. And having studied that and having a background in search and rescue, when I was in Kerry, when I I grew up in Kerry, I used to surf a lot. Um, But I also undertook um, rescue diving and scuba diving training. I spent a lot of time on boats. So I suppose I felt like I understood the context, the political context, through the things I was studying, through the newspapers I was reading. But I also had some training. You know, maybe it was a little bit naive, but I felt I had some training that I could say, okay, I can go out and I can help wherever I can to pull somebody out of the water, to provide them with you know, potentially life-saving support or potentially just a supporting smile in a journey that is... But Sean, can I just ask you a simple question? What age were you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I started when I was 23. I, I went when I was 23 um, to Lesbos, to Greece. Um, and, I, and I think, yeah, su- surprisingly, a lot of, a lot of people... Um, have gone down, and and I was, I, you know, I wasn't the youngest person there. Um, it 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 feels a little bit like one shouldn't be down there, I suppose. At, um, but it just seemed so important to me. It just seemed like how how can it be that we're that we're letting people drown? That it really isn't that difficult. Although these journeys are so incredibly dangerous. And, you know, I, I saw, I've seen people packed into boats. You, you usually see these boats in, in, in the newspapers. They're, they're, they're safe for about 10 people. And there's maybe 86 people. That was the most I ever saw. 86 people without life jackets. You know, people often are holding onto these water bottles that are stitched into high visibility fabric because they're given it as a safety equipment. It's, it's completely, um, completely dangerous. But they're just passed out to sea. And while it's so dangerous, we just don't provide the necessary services. There's not, and there are not enough people making sure that they don't drown. And so despite my age, I felt that, you know, I could help. You know, people are listening to your story for the first time. You know, in a way, they've heard of Lesbos and all of these things. But here we're talking about a young Irish guy who goes there. What was the emotion for you? What was it like? It's, it's horrendous. You know, you, you have people just completely struggling to survive. I mean, I, I met I met a lot of people, a lot of people who are making that journey, who are fleeing from conflict, um, who were basically had, had left their, their entire lives behind. And it reminded me of, I suppose, or it, it made it very clear to me that my own upbringing was 
was actually really lucky. So I'm, I'm, I grew up in Ireland. I, I would consider myself a Carrie man. Um, but my, my mother is German and my father is Vietnamese. So he himself made that. He was what we consider a boat person during the uh, American war in Vietnam. So he fled in very similar circumstances. And although he and I are more or less estranged, um, just being mindful of, of how lucky I was to be, to be in, in Ireland and to be safe. And then having grown up, you know, again, right in Castle of Gregory, which is this beautiful little um, village in the southwest of Ireland, having a very healthy relationship with the ocean, being loving the ocean, absolutely loving the ocean, and being in one of the safest parts of the world in Europe, realizing that that isn't the same, that people don't have that same experience that I had, that people really do end up drowning, people do really suffer. And so I felt compelled to go, I suppose. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure it's the most, I'm not sure it is, it's hard to describe, I suppose. I, I try not to think about it in an overly personal way, given the context. Well, I, I want you to, to, for the people who are listening to this, because we're going to come, come back to your background in Castle Gregory and growing up, as it were, in Kerry, because you call yourself a Kerry man. But just paint for me a picture. You ended up, a young Kerry man ended up in a Greek jail for over a hundred days. Tell me what that was like. We were a fairly small team of medics and certain rescuers. Um, and yeah, I mean, got, got no sleep for about a year. Basically every night we'd be out looking out to sea in our search and rescue boats, responding to people arriving in distress. I mean, I think people often think that it's a Greek island and they associate with our summer holidays and that it's, you know, really quite warm and really quite safe. Unfortunately, that isn't the experience that we saw. I mean, we've had people come in with hyperthermic shock, for God's sake, going into cardiac arrest because it can get so cold and people are abandoned there. They are really alone in those small dinghies. And so we would mostly provide a fairly, like a lot of the time we have this idea that the search and rescue is going in with their, with their almost, you know, it's very heroic with their boats going in and all this equipment and everything is fast-paced going, going. But in, in reality, most of the time, I did nothing like, I mean, most of the time I was handing out, you know, bottles of water, a warm blanket, giving out a smile. But there were occasions when there was danger and that's why having, having us there was, in my view, so, so important. And indeed, I think the Coast Guard thought that too because ironically, we were side by side, I have clear memories of me standing shoulder to shoulder with the Coast Guard responding to boats coming in um, across the border from Turkey and boats in distress. And then despite, despite that cooperation, in around February of 2018, um, it was about 3am, I was doing what we call a, um, a spotting shift. Basically, it's all night out at the coast at the last point where the cliffs get really dangerous. And I was looking out and the police come um, and they, we were, I was with a colleague called Sarah, a good friend of mine now, and they asked to see our passports, which is fairly normal, you know, and of course we cooperated, we showed them a passport. And then they searched the, the rescue Jeep that we were in. So this is a branded, it's branded with the organization, it's a, it's a Jeep, 
that has all our equipment inside. They start searching it, which is not unusual, but it's pretty strange, I guess. And then they, then they said they're taking us in for questioning. And so in this, they took us into their, um, to the Coast Guard prison and they held us overnight. And at this point, we have no idea what's going on. We didn't understand the gravity of what was going to happen. So they detained us overnight. And the following day, they took us in, uh, they took us in for questioning in their office and they started suggesting that we were maybe carrying illegal items, that we might have been um, contributing to the smuggling that, that happened, the people who get smuggled across the border. And then they took, they took me, they left there behind in the cell. They took me with their armed, armed forces and, and went to raid our, our warehouse, for example. They searched the boxes. They found absolutely nothing. They went to our houses. They confiscated our electronic items. They found nothing because we didn't have anything improper. And so they released us. And then about five days later, there was this article written in the local Lesbos newspaper, and it, it was written really dramatically. It said something like, a spy has been apprehended on the island with his Syrian accomplice, and they were driving a stolen military jeep trying to access the military bases on the southern part of the island. And is that you they were referring to? It was me they were referring to. They said something like, if it sounds like a James Bond article, it's because it is like a James Bond, or if it sounds like a James Bond film, it's because it is like a James Bond film. And we continued working. And then in, in August, well, just in, sorry, in July, I came back to Ireland because my grandmother, um, she, she had cancer. She was, she was terminally ill. And um, I knew, we knew she was going to pass. So I came back just to, um, to say goodbye. And then... She passed away, and I. Then in August, I returned to the island, and then two weeks later, we were, um, we were again arrested, but this time, this time it was it was much more severe. The we had at this point gathered a legal team, with with whom the prosecution had had corresponded, and they were building this this case against us that included some of the most severe crimes you can be accused of. I mean, we're talking about essentially smuggling, which is a severe crime, um, money laundering, forgery, fraud, being part of a criminal organization, and, and even espionage or spying. <laughs> these, are, these are crimes that are hugely, hugely important. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age.
Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Sean, this is an incredible story. So at that stage, you were then incarcerated and put into prison. How long were you in prison for? Because the crimes are, are so severe, the prosecution determined that we should be held in pretrial detention, and then they got that. Basically, that means that you can be held up to 18 months before a formal trial begins because they're, you're, at such a, you're such a danger to society and you're such a risk of, of running away from, from the accusations. So we spent three and a half months in pretrial detention. Sean, tell me that again. Three and a half months in a Greek jail. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think I think what struck me was at first. It, then it really hit me. Then I then I was thinking. The first thing that went to my mind is, oh shit! Like I I've been naive. I thought I was helping, but what I did was illegal. I cannot believe. And I, I began to like think through my actions and really. I really thought that I'd done something wrong because why else would I be in prison? And then, very, very luckily, we, we began getting the support. Like, the, the people in Kerry and Cork were absolutely outraged by this. My friends and family and family friends and started emailing their politicians, the MEPs, the media. And so eventually it came to Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. These are big players in the human rights field who try to monitor a lot of the the perhaps human rights abuses that occur in, in some countries. And they, they don't usually work in Greece. They don't usually work in Europe as such, but they took over our case. And Human Rights Watch, they published an article saying, um, essentially, the, the, it's the criminalization of saving lives. So they went through the, the case file and they found absolutely nothing. And this is exactly what our legal team say as well, is that despite the severity of the accusations that we face, and despite being in prison for them, we had done absolutely nothing wrong. Sean, can I just, can I hold you there for a second? Can you paint a picture, a pen picture, of what every day was like in that prison in Greece? <sighs> yeah. I, um, <laughs> it's not, I mean, the joke that I like to say is if you're going to go to prison, do it on a Greek island. But that's making light of a situation that I realize is it, it was it was it was horrendous, to be honest with you. I mean, I spent I spent many months in in jail. So that's part of the, the jail is are the cells part of the police station. And then I was also transferred to prison, which is where the larger itself contained cells. Um, in in the months in jail, we weren't allowed to go outside. Uh, we had no access to. I mean, there were no doors in the toilets. There was it was dirty, and it's incredibly difficult to 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 remain, I guess, confident that what you did was right. It's incredibly difficult to to stay confident that things will be over when you have no end in sight. 
I mean, it could be 18 months, of course, but that was very far down the road when I was first in there. Um, but did you worry each day? Did you, how, did you go to bed at night saying, oh my God, this nightmare is going to continue. I may never get out. Yeah. So, I mean, I face centuries in prison and I will probably have to serve 25 years if I'm found guilty. I was less than, I mean, that would be more than half my life in prison from my point of view for doing nothing wrong. And that was, I think I was, I think it was just very confused and angry and disheartened. But I, I grew, I, I got, I, it wasn't so bad for me. When I think relatively at my time in, in prison, they were there. I had, I at this point already had support from people back home in Ireland. People knew about my case. I had access to lawyers. And I got, I got more and more confident as the weeks went by that I had done nothing wrong. But then having been, being with people, sharing a cell with people who, one guy I remember, he, he, he was pacing up and down. He was doing really badly. I was reading on my, I had a concrete slab basically where I could sleep. And I was lying there reading uh, like case files and things like that. And he was pacing up and down and Suddenly he stopped and I gotten so used to his rhythm of moving up and down. When he stopped, I wondered what was happening. And so I got up and I went there and he had basically just out of my view, out of the cell view, he had tied a noose with the, his sheets. And I had to run it and like, I had to lift him out of... And my point is that even there were people who had had so much worse, is what I'm saying. There, there, was, there was a guy in there, a, a young man, he... He must have been just just gone 18, and he was from Afghanistan, I believe. And again, he was put into prison to cool down, basically, because he had he in in the camp he had been shouting uh, because he had been waiting there for two years, I think, for any kind of confirmation. He'd been living in a small tent, and you know I can understand his frustration. Perhaps he shouldn't have gotten. Perhaps he shouldn't have been shouting as much as he was, but he must have his frustration. He had been in there for two weeks without having any idea if he would be let out. No one spoke uh, the language that he spoke. The Greeks, the Greek police didn't provide a translator. And so from his point of view, he never knew when he would get out. And he didn't know he would get out in two weeks. That must have been so frightening. So absolutely frightening. At least I had access to Greek lawyers. At least I had legal counsel that could tell me, look, whatever happens, we're here. Whatever happens, we know that the facts are in our favor. Some people didn't have that. And while it was horrendous lying on a concrete slab with, you know, bed bug ridden foam mats and having very little food and having a very, very unhygienic environment, at least I still had that support from the people back home, from a great legal team. But so many people don't have that. Can I just draw something, if, if you don't mind, can I just draw something to the people who are listening to you now in this podcast? You were still, now you're free, you're back studying at the moment. Uh, my understanding is you're studying uh, in, in England at the moment, but you still have the prospects of a sentence of 20, your, your full trial has not come and you could face up to, what is it, 25 years in a, in a, in a Greek jail? To be honest, I, I, really, I don't believe that that'll, it'll come to that. I am very hopeful because at the end of the day, 
pulling somebody out of the water and providing them with a bit of support is is not a crime. It cannot be a crime. It is the it is it is neither a crime nor is it heroic. It is the most basic thing you can do to help somebody not die. So we were three, four organizations doing search and rescue on the southern part of the island of Lesbos. And the day after arrest, there's none. There's no more. And that might not seem so severe in the light of there being Coast Guard and the Navy ships in the water. But you have to remember that the Coast Guard and the Navy ships, they hardly have any medics. They hardly have any equipment. It would take them about 40 minutes to send an ambulance to our part of the island. And when we had people there who were, you know, they were experiencing stress-induced labor contractions, for example, they were going into cardiac arrest, suffering from hypothermia. We could have responded within seven minutes. That, it might not seem so severe not having a few civilian search and rescuers, but it can be very important. It can be the, the difference of life and death. So having us, having there be no search and rescue or dissuading search and rescuers from participating in those activities is an important consequence, even if we're not found guilty. Your free travel card can be used on all expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, Remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. Sean, what you're telling me is an incredible story. And to be honest, <laughs> the hair is standing on the back of my neck. But I want to just now, to bring you back to Kerry, tell me a little bit about getting there, growing up there, what life was like there. As you say, you're a Castle Gregory boy. Uh, I, I know it well. I've passed through it many a time. Um, so tell me what it was like, what it was like growing up there and with your particular background. So I, I, I arrived in Kerry from, from Germany. My grandmother and her, her lifetime partner, her girlfriend, they moved to Ireland in 1994, the year I was born. They went on a cycling holiday, absolutely fell in love with the place decided to move. And then to be closer to them, uh, my mother and I and my mother, single parent, uh, we moved as well to be close to them. And I, the following year, enrolled in the Castle River National School and I bloody love the place. I, I absolutely adore the ocean, the mountains. And I mean, I've, I've had a bit of a... Uh, I had a... I had not the easiest time growing up in Kerry. Tell me why. Tell me why you had, didn't have the easiest time, because it's important. Well, I mean, firstly, having a grandmother who was, who was lesbian, of course, and then being a foreigner, I'm, 
it was a bit singled out, I suppose. Um, but it did, I mean, it did awaken me then to, to wanting to fit in more, to, to making that effort, to feeling part of the community. So when I then went to secondary school, I went to the Gwilchlashta in Tralee, which is the Irish speaking school, which I absolutely loved. And I got on so well with my classmates there and really began to appreciate what I had achieved there, which was a home. Um, and the feeling of being Irish as well. That that was, I think that was a really nice time for me. And that's where I would call home. And that's where I see, that's where I see myself in the, in the future. But it is interesting, you said that when you were in jail, the Kerry people and indeed the Cork people rallied around you. <laughs> they did. It was, it was, it was so heartening and it, it was quite unexpected to have as much support as, as I did. I remember there were there were protests um, and and kind of demonstrations in in Germany and, and in Sweden and in and in London as well. And they were kind of organised. Like the one in Berlin had a stage, and it was quite a quite a big event. But the one in the one in Dublin went. It was organised by my family, and it was. It was great. Like it was an exact, exact, exactly how my family has fit in. They kind of had a samba band there, and it was kind of loud marching and singing and dancing. It almost didn't make any sense. It almost felt like they were celebrating a day in Dublin rather than demanding my release from prison. But it was that kind of energy I really like, and that was. It was really heartening to receive news of that in prison, um, especially when I. You know, at the outset, I felt so. We all felt so alone. Before we, we before we come to the end of, of 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 this journey today, there's one little story. I love the story. I'm told that that you took a a priest over to Iona. Is that correct? Tell me about that story because I think it's so it's so lovely. Yeah, that's right. Um, so just after um, my leaving cert. Um, I had I had gotten in contact with this priest Garoid from um, from Phoenix. He passed away now, unfortunately. Um, but he had he had absolutely loved sailing and the ocean himself. Um, but he had developed Parkinson's, and so he was unfortunately no no longer able to to handle the rigging or to do most of the navigational stuff either. But it, it was it was his dream to to go on I guess a final pilgrimage to the Isle of Iona, um, which which you yeah which which we thought you know I thought maybe I could help out and so he he had a sailing boat a really old banger of a thing um, so we we kind of we gathered a small crew and four people and we didn't have that much sailing experience I mean I had this. I had some training, of course, out at sea, given my rescue diving and things like that. But uh, wasn't we weren't the best, and we went out. Um, we we went from Phoenix, which is just outside Tralee and Kerry. I know it in the Inner Hebrides, um, so out out in Scotland, and we went island hopping basically um, for about two weeks. It was wonderful. The islands, the islands on the west coast of Ireland, um, fantastic. Um, it was really, really beautiful experience. 
Um, and he, he, Harold really enjoyed it as well. And by the time we got to, what I didn't realize is that your legs get really shaky at first. And I, I felt so sick. I was extremely sick for the first two days when we were passing the cliffs of Moher. By the time I got to, by the time I got to the Iona Island, when I got onto sea, onto land, my legs were wobbly. I couldn't, I couldn't, I felt sick then on land. I didn't realize that would happen. But so he, he, he stayed there and we prayed for a few days and then we made our way back down again. Um, we got caught in a few storms now. And so I was glad we had, we had a priest on our side for that. Um, but by and large, it was a very safe journey. And I remember then coming back and the mountains um, in Kerry, the Kerry Mountains, just from the sea, it was amazing to see. And the dolphins followed us in for the last stretch of the journey. It was really nice. It was such a good experience. And it, I think it just really redoubled my, my respect for the ocean and my belief that that again, that the water can be a safe experience if, if only you have the right training and the right access to services as we did. And I think that was part of the decision to go to Lesbos as well, you know. Can I just ask you before we conclude, what are you doing now? Just where are you in your life? I know this trial is still hanging over you. You hope it'll eventually disappear. But what are you actually, as a young man now, or a slightly older young man, what are you doing now? I'm not sure at what point I can no longer say I'm a young man. I think I'm quickly approaching that threshold. But, um, yeah, you know, waiting out this trial, I guess, is the most important thing. But in the meantime, I've, I've had, to be honest with you, I've had a lot of good experiences too. I mean, I've, had, I've been in a position to, to speak to members of the European Parliament. I, I gave a speech at the European Parliament there and we've had very constructive conversations with European Commission members around the, the wider problem. So there's about 171 people around Europe who have been prosecuted. I got in, I've had a lot of conversations with people who have been arrested for handing out a bit of, a bit of warm food um, things like things as mundane as that, and raising awareness about that has been, I think, an important step for me to feel like I can take control of this situation and I can make something good out of what has been a very difficult few years. So, you know, going to the United States, for example, to speak to congressmen about the issue of border crossing and how we, in although controlling border might be an important thing for a country to do, it doesn't mean that we need to let people die at the border. And I think we've had, I've had success in raising the awareness of that message. So that's what I've spent my time doing. And I really want to formalize a lot of the advocacy work and that legal work that I've done by just getting, becoming a qualified lawyer. And so that's kind of the state that I'm at now. Qualified lawyer is what you want to become. I'm going to ask you one last thing. And this is not uh, politics with a, a capital P. But are, are you happy the way that we as a country, uh, as an island, uh, Ireland, that we have ha- handled the whole uh, migrant issue? By and large, yeah. The conversation that I've had with people around this issue, like my neighbours, I've had some really interesting conversations with my neighbours who have, prior to me leaving, held a position like, you know, these are all 
economic migrants and they're not deserving and you know some of them are terrorists and things like that um since having gone and since having those conversations after being arrested myself i think some people have taken the time to read about how they are the people that are crossing the border the migrants are you know fairly normal they are just they're normal people who have had normal jobs normal families the only difference is that their their home was destroyed you know Ireland's navy in doing search and rescue um although it's petered out a little now you know was extremely supportive and did help many out at sea many many people out at sea compared to other european nations for example so i think it's in us i think there is that drive to support people who are in need as you've just described Sean, all I can say is that um, thank you so much. I, I really mean it. I just think that people who listen to what you've just described over the past 30 or 40 minutes, you really are an inspiring person. And I know you probably don't want people to say that and you don't want to hear that, but you are actually your role model. And in a way, you're the best that um, a young Irish person that I can imagine that really have powerful and great that you are and there are so many others like you uh, so I, 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 all I want to say is you know the issue of, of, of the people in the Mediterranean the people coming across it's not going to go away the headlines have gone away because of the pandemic uh, but we will all of us will have to deal with this in the coming period but all I want to say is is thank you very much and I mean from the bottom of my heart for you talking uh, to us today and uh, all I want to say also is let everybody, including yourself, stay safe in these uncertain times. This podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy. Mm-hmm.